You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. Watch highlights from this and other Office Hours interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash belfercenter. Arup spoke with Chuck Freilich, who's previously held positions in Israel at the Ministry of Defense and as a Deputy National Security Advisor. He's the author of Israeli National Security, A New Strategy for an Era of Change, available spring 2018 from Oxford University Press. Freilich is currently a senior fellow with the Belfer Center's International Security Program. Your book is coming out March 1st, 2018. It's called Israeli uh, National Security, A New Strategy for an Era of Change. Uh, Why did you feel you needed to write this book? Well, there are really two special things about the book that it was designed to address. First of all, I think it's the most comprehensive book to date on Israeli national security. Uh, Loads of hundreds of books have been written about every specific uh, subject, sub-subject about Israeli national security, foreign policy, defense policy. No one put it together in a comprehensive uh, whole. Almost like a national security strategy of the United States, is that? that... And that's to the second objective, which is the final chapter of the book sets out a detailed proposal for a comprehensive Israeli national security strategy. That's only been done once in Israel's history, and that was classified in 2006. Uh, That was the only classified one, and no one has ever done it publicly. Let's start with the basics. What what is a strategy, uh, and why why is it important? That's actually a really good question. I would say that it has a few components. First of all, you have to define what your national objectives are. And once you've done that and you've prioritized them a bit, then you can start talking about what are the different options for achieving those objectives and laying them out. This isn't a detailed blueprint. Um, People who want an answer to how to address every single issue that Israel faces, well, they'll only find a partial answer to that. This is an overall statement of how Israel should proceed Uh, but then you have to translate it into specific policy documents. Kind of like a general orientation to the world, an outlook. Um, sometimes the word grand strategy, the term grand strategy is used. Is that something that would be related here? I think I'm a level below grand strategy. Yeah. It, it's a national security strategy. Yeah. So I do address the primary threats mm-hmm. and I, or challenges, because mm-hmm. some of them, uh, in some cases, even opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and I lay out a general approach how to address these things. Yeah. But there isn't a detailed blueprint for yeah. each issue. Well, why hasn't there been uh, a, a national security doctrine or, uh, or published uh, strategy? Is it the fear that uh, you'll, be, you'll be held to it, that you'll tell your enemies what you're up to, that you need political flexibility? And w- why hasn't this happened? I think you indicated some of, the, some of the reasons. I think in the early decades, Israel was all about just surviving. Nobody had time or resources for doing a lot of strategic thinking. Mm-hmm. That was considered a luxury. Israel was living day to day. What's happened in the last couple of decades is that the nature of the, the challenges, the threats has changed. They're more long-term. For example, Iran and Hezbollah, which are the primary challenges that Israel faces today, they've, they, have no, uh, they don't believe that they can destroy Israel in the next year or two. That's their objective, but they know this is going to take them at best decades. Mm-hmm. So they're pursuing a long-term strategy. That also means that Israel has to start thinking more long-term. The Iranian nuclear issue has been with us since the early 90s. And it's going to be with us for many years to come. Mm. So you have to think in a different way. These, sorry, these, 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 are these threats that new? I mean, you, you mentioned it's an era of change. And to me, I felt, well, you know, these have been, Iran has been a threat for a long time. There's been a lot of the regional neighbors. What, what, what's, what's changed? What's, what's different? The Mideast, I think, changes at a frenetic pace. 
There's probably no other part of the world where the change is quite as rapid and as broad, as dramatically broad. Look at where we are today, spring, or almost spring, 2018. Seven years ago, the Arab uh, spring breaks out, and some people say we should call it the Arab winter. Who could have believed that Husni Mubarak would be toppled, Gaddafi would be toppled? Gaddafi had been in power for 40 years, Mubarak for 30 years, and there was a counter-revolution. Uh, Assad, junior and father, now been in power for 40, um, almost 50 years. And he's back in power. Everything is changing in the region. The Iranians mm-hmm. at, at the head of the Shiite camp are ascendant today. The Sunni world is in a state of almost panic, I would say. This is a reversal of um, 1,300 years of Muslim history. The Sunnis, the Shia were always a small, persecuted, weak minority in the Arab world. Today, they're the ascendant force. So things are changing all the time. The nature of, the, of warfare, not just in the Mideast, but specifically... Cyber what it, and drones and things Not like just that. cyber and drones, but... I'm, Israel doesn't face any significant threats of conventional military-to-military warfare anymore. It's managed to contain the terrorism, um, traditional terrorism, if you will. Today, the threat is from asymmetric threats, from rockets, from non-conventional capabilities, from an enemy Iran, which is 1,300 kilometers away from Israel. So, okay, Israeli society has changed over the decades. And that's why it's an era of change. I think Israel has something like a decade, which is a window of opportunity to make some of the major national decisions that it has to make from a position of strength. And, and the position of strength is something that you note, you note is, is also another change. And one of the interesting things I, I read was that you said that, uh, you know, the, uh, Israel's power is Israel's more powerful today uh, than it was. It doesn't face these existential threats, but it still makes national security decisions based on that existential insecurity. And that felt to me like a pretty, pretty important point, um, that they're both internal changes that need to happen to account for these, these large external uh, changes in power balance in the Middle East. Well, to understand the country, you have to understand its psychology. Uh, Saudi Arabia can't buy enough arms to feel secure. Iran has got a deep sense of historic insecurity that goes back to the experience of the Persian Empire. Israel, the Jewish people, have got a a history of 2,000 years of persecution, of being a weak, persecuted, oppressed people throughout the diaspora. The pogroms of Eastern Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And of course, it culminates in in the Holocaust. There is nothing, it doesn't matter how many wars Israel wins, how strong it is militarily, that can counter the fundamental sense of insecurity that the Holocaust inculcated in the Jewish people. The sense of, that you can face destruction. This isn't just some artificial statement, an academic article. This is real life. Um, Israel memorial commemorates the Holocaust in a whole variety of ways. There's an annual Remembrance Day. High school students, most 11th graders, go on a week-long visit to Poland they go to Auschwitz and some of the other death camps. It's something which is taught at some level in Israel from nursery, from nursery school on. There was even a funny story a couple of years ago. It turns out the Hebrew word for Nazis, which is the same thing, or Nazim is the plural in Hebrew, sounds almost like the Hebrew word for thumbtacks, Nazim. 
So there were some nursery school kids who didn't understand why the thumbtacks were trying to destroy the Jewish people. <laughs> but uh, this is something which you can't understand Israel without this. Do you think in American foreign policy making, I think one of the fears now is that a lot of people who are who are uh, who are making decisions uh, didn't experience and didn't really witness uh, the horror uh, World War, um, and um, and and so they're more likely to use force or they're 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 less likely to be cautious about uh, sending troops in. Is there a concern at all in the Israeli in the Israeli public that we are getting too far away from such a devastating and uh, and, and important moment in in Israeli uh, uh, in the nation in the sense of the nation and their sense of their future? Well, I mean, I think that actually the Holocaust ends up having too much an impact. The sense of insecurity has too much of an impact on how Israel makes decisions because I think Israel is today a regional power. And it's never been more secure militarily, never stronger. And that's something I think we have an opportunity to make decisions from a position of strength. I think the current leadership has, uh, for political reasons, has done exactly the opposite and played on people's primal fears in Israel. And so uh, what do they want? What, what, are they, what, what is their end goal? What is their strategy? Well, that, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure that I know. I think the policy is very short-sighted. I think if you probably talk to the prime minister, to Netanyahu, uh, privately, he understands, for example, the Palestinian issue the way most people in the world do, that the policy of settlements actually doesn't play to Israel's benefit and, actually, and poses a long-term threat to Israel's future as a Jewish and democratic state. But he lives in a political reality, which makes it hard for him to make decisions. And I think, unfortunately, he's played to the right. He's playing to those primal fears. And that's how he's managed to remain prime minister for a decade already. What will it take to move Israel back from the right uh, to moderate a little bit on this issue? Look, I think the real reason that we haven't had a deal with the Palestinians is actually because the Palestinians have rejected dramatic Israeli proposals for peace, virtually all of their demands. And there's a real question whether there is any deal that the Palestinians will accept that means a Palestinian state living next to Israel. So anything which is short of 100% of their demands. Now, at the same time, the current Israeli government is a right-wing government. They're not going to make the concessions. And the question is, if and when a more moderate Israeli government is elected, it'll happen sometime. Well, you think that window, the window opportunity is closing. You're, I mean, you're saying that we've got 10 years, roughly, to, to make this happen. Well, I hope that a more moderate government mm -hmm. in Israel will be elected before that. And my fear is that there is simply no partner on the Palestinian side. Abbas is 82. He's not going to be there forever, another year or two. I don't know, three. How long can he be there? Who is his successor? And the answer is no one knows. I think there will probably be a power play on the Palestinian side. Whoever comes out on top will probably not have the legitimacy that Abbas has as one of the original founders of the, of the PLO to make the critical decisions that they have to make. And unfortunately, until Gaza and the West Bank reunite, until the head of the PA can actually speak for the entire Palestinian people, they can't make a deal even if they want to. So, I mean, it's not even deal. clear whether or not Abbas could... Uh, could actually make a deal given uh, given the split between Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, so, what does it take? I mean, get back, but getting back to your to the book and 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 a security strategy. What does it take for Israel to have security? Well, 
I mean, first of all, I, I do say that one of the big changes that we can make because we're strong enough to do it is to take an approach which is based on greater strategic patience. And what that means is greater self-restraint. And I think Israel actually exercises great self-restraint today. We don't respond to every rocket attack. And can you imagine if Somerville was firing rockets at Cambridge, the United States would go ballistic. That's the situation we have with Hamas. So even today we don't respond and, uh, to all attacks. And I think we can respond to even fewer. We can, we're strong enough to take it. That also means we have to strengthen Israeli deterrence, and I think we have to invest more in defense, so we can take a more defense-based approach. Um, but there's also the, the reality that Israel doesn't have a lot of friends in the neighborhood. I mean, of course, things are relatively good with Egypt and Jordan relative to the other folks in, in the Middle East, but generally speaking, um, Israel isn't surrounded by... Uh, uh, by friends. Is that trust ever uh, able to be gained? Well, the Palestinian issue is the key. Um, most of the Arab states will not establish open relations with Israel, let alone actual formal relations, if ever, certainly not before the Palestinian issue is resolved or major progress is achieved. But what we've seen in the last year or two is actually a dramatic historic transformation because, according to all of the public reports, the Saudis, the other Gulf states, are engaged in at least deep dialogue and maybe deep cooperation with Israel. Now, publicly, it's condemnation, it's the Palestinians, it's all the old rhetoric, but the reality is that the shared fear of Iran has created something of a Sunni Arab and Israeli coalition. Uh, so on the one hand, surrounded by states who are, in some cases, formal enemies, or Egypt and Jordan who've made peace, but the relationship is very cold, Beneath the surface, the military and the strategic cooperation is evolving very rapidly. Yeah, not just that. The Saudis, I was, I was also curious to know uh, what, what your take is on, on the Saudi moderation, uh, at least the purported moderation of Mohammed bin Salman and his... Uh, uh, Vision 2030. That's right, exactly, Vision 2030. Um, Israel and Saudi Arabia um, historically have had uh, tension, of course, but is, is, that, is that a change that, that the Israelis are welcoming? Is it something they're suspicious, skeptical about? Well, in many ways, this is Israel's long-term dream, is to have not just a dialogue, but even cooperation with the Arab states, with Saudi Arabia, which is the heart of Islam, the keeper of the two holy places, uh, the leader of today of the Sunni world. This is a, a dramatic transformation. The question is how far it can go. Um, and here, I don't know. I'm, I'm a private citizen yeah. today. I don't have the inside info. I'm sure that there are things like intelligence exchanges today. That you can do. Maybe some quiet coordination of positions. Can this go as far as some of the press reports seem to be indicating to concrete cooperation against Iran? That would really be a dramatic change. And clearly, there's also a lot of um, military cooperation going on with Egypt and Jordan today. Uh, do these sorts of developments in politics, um, if it's Saudi Arabia, uh, if it's other sorts of um, uh, moderating forces in politics, do, do they give you hope that this window will be achieved, that we'll be able to find uh, a two-state solution within the next 10 years? Okay. I think the relations with the Sunnis are pretty much unrelated to the two-state issue. To reach a settlement with the Palestinians, I think we need uh, three changes. We need a leadership, a change in leadership in Israel, a change in leadership in Ramallah, and probably a change in leadership in Washington as well. 
Abbas has been the president since 2004. He's had numerous opportunities to make the historic decisions that have to be made, including in 2008 when Prime Minister Omar put a remarkable proposal on the table. He's never done it. I don't know why. I think the primary reason is because he was offered, in essence, 100% of the Palestinian demands, except for the issue of refugees. And that's a deal which he either doesn't want or cannot accept. We need a change in Israel. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been there for 10 years also. He's had opportunities to make uh, some historic changes, and he hasn't done it. I tend to think that President Trump is not the president that we need for... It doesn't have to be a Clinton who goes to Camp David for 13 days. I mean, that's a remarkable presidential commitment. But it does require a sustained focused presidential effort to reach a, break, a breakthrough. I'm not sure that he's the guy to do that. Yeah, I mean, does it, when Israel looks at the United States as a partner in, this, in the peace process, they look at the United States and say, mm, you know, it definitely doesn't have enough internal problems of its own to, uh, to, to take us, uh, to give us a lot of attention. Is there a concern that the U.S. just doesn't care about the, about the peace process? I think there's a concern that the U.S. isn't really playing very much in the Mideast today, that the retrenchment... Well, it probably began in the latter Bush years, but it certainly um, was deepened greatly during the Obama years. Uh, There are still a fair number of people in Israel, including the prime minister, who think that the nuclear deal was a historic error. That and an issue that I do agree with, that the U.S. did not uh, step up enough to the plate in regard to Syria. Not that there were any good solutions. There were none. But between total non-involvement and doing something, the U.S. could have done more. And that this process of retrenchment or disengagement from the Mideast, uh, rhetoric to the contrary, is continuing and even deepening under President Trump. And if the U.S. isn't playing, well, there's no vacuum. And that means that Russia has come in big time to the region. The good news is that Israel actually has a good relationship with Russia. Russia does give some consideration to Israeli concerns, but just some. But Syria is a strange place because there you have the Russians essentially... By backing Assad, they are also working, helping out the Iranians and giving them a greater foothold in Syria, which also threatens, further threatens Israel. So, and Trump's cozier with the Russians. So, in a sense, you could say this: you know, the new administration is helping Iran pose a greater threat to Israel. Is that a dynamic that creates a whole lot of complications now? You know, how you decide? I think you explained it beautifully. The situation couldn't be more complicated in Syria. And let's also add Turkey and Saudi Arabia and ISIS and (laughs) the situation in Iraq and in Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah. Yeah, why not? Throw those in there too. (laughs) Sure. I mean, this place is an absolute mess. Right. The U.S. isn't playing in Syria today, just about. I'm overstating it. A minor role. Mm-hmm. The Russians are leading there. Well, it, today it's the Russians and it's Iran. Now, the Russians want to have a long-term military presence in Syria. They don't want to be the, the force controlling things on the ground. They're happy to uh, give that role to the Iranians. And the result is, as you're saying, is Iran is the other dominant force. And Iran is there for the very long term. And they're willing to be on the ground. And what we've seen now is this emergence of a Iran-Syria-Hezbollah axis. Iran talking about setting up uh, not just a ground presence. They've already got tens of thousands of militias in Syria. But they've been talking about establishing an air base and a naval base in Syria. 
Now, that's something that I don't think Israel can allow. And there have been a number of pinpointed Israeli attacks in recent months. The Iranians stopped for a while. Now, apparently, they started their construction efforts again. I imagine that Israel will try and send another message. Don't do this. If the Iranians don't get this message and press ahead, then we have the makings for an Israeli-Iranian war. I mean, there have been some major domestic movements in Iran that have given a little hope uh, against, uh, you know, uh, uh, that that it will be moderating or might be moderating. Certainly, there was a great pushback, um, and then recently in December, on the issues of uh, of these proxy wars and the amount of money that Iran is funneling uh, to uh, to needle and to to poke other countries uh, outside of its own borders. Given that domestic backlash, do you have any hope that Iran and Israel one day could be friends? Well, one day is a long time. And until the Islamic Revolution in 1979, Israel and Iran had a very good relationship. And the truth is that there's absolutely no reason for the current enmity. Uh, The distance between Israel and the Iranian border is 1,300 kilometers meaning we have no territory in common to fight about, we have no resources in common Mm -hmm. to fight about, no border disputes. It's ideological. I think the source of this conflict is Iran's theocratic um, opposition to any non-Muslim entity in the Middle East. Israel is Jewish, okay, if it was Christian, it would be the same thing. Iran can live with Jewish or Christian minorities in Muslim countries, but not with the Jewish country. I think that's the source of the problem. And as long as the Islamic Republic is in power, no, I don't think there's any prospect for a significant change uh, for the better. I want to transition to some fun questions. Uh, you're a security person. You, you have served in the military. You uh, were, the, of course, the deputy national security advisor uh, in Israel. Um, when you were growing up, did you have a favorite toy that you liked to play with? Uh, were you like a Lego person? Were you more of a trucks Guy, what did you... <laughs> That's going back a while. It was trucks. Trucks? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. All sorts of big ones. I had one a big red... I think it was... Yeah, it was a, a gas tank, an oil tanker yeah. that I could sit on and ride all around the house. In. Oh, it was it was like a big toy. And not huge, yeah, but yeah. it was big enough that so I could sit on and, yeah, I put on a good few miles in the house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you can always wonder about, you know, what, what are the sorts of things that... This chicken and egg sort of situation about children and, and whether or not they are, you know, the folks who are more likely to enter the security space and, and national security are more likely to choose certain types of toys or the other way around. Um, what, uh, you, I mean, you also moved to Israel as a teenager, so maybe around the time you were graduating from toys. Um, a little you, beyond. Yeah, a little beyond. Was that a pretty, uh, was that a pretty, um, uh, was there a culture shock? Was, it, was that a big transition for you? I actually grew up in a uh, very Zionist home, a secular home, but with deep Jewish traditions. Somehow, I grew up in Manhattan. Somehow, by the time I was 11 or 12 years old, I had read so many books, I knew that I was moving to Israel. Um, It's called Aliyah. It's going up when a Jew migrates to, to Israel. And it was only a question of whether my parents would do it or not. If they didn't, then I'd have to wait till I finished high school. And you not, knew at 11 whether or not your parents were going to do it. Right. And then, I, happily, when I was 13, my parents decided to do it. So we moved as a family. And, yeah, sure, there were some cultural changes. Uh, and certainly, and my Hebrew was pretty basic at the time. 
So the first couple of years were hard from that point of view, but I felt at home pretty much from day one. Uh, is that is that a trend uh, that is has been slowing or speeding up, or is that something that uh, is causing that that affects the dem- uh, demography in in Israel and a lot of these calculuses about settlements and other sorts of stuff? Is how many people are actually coming back to Israel? Um, the, there were two or three big migrations in Israeli history. There was in the early years in the fifties. Well, there was the first one post World War II, the remnants of European Jewry. The second one was from the Arab world in the 50s. There was a, well, two big Russian, uh, Russian Jewish immigrations in the 90s, um, in the 70s and in the 90s. And there were two big immigrations from Ethiopia. Uh, most people don't know that. Yeah, I did not. Black Jews. Um, Yemen, also back in the late 40s, early, yeah, in the early 50s. Most of Israel's population, uh, are either immigrants or children, first or second generation of immigrants. The number of people who've immigrated from the United States is actually quite small. Um, most of those who do so today tend to be Orthodox. Um, the number of secular Jews who do it is pretty small. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that when you, when you come back to the U.S. that you like to indulge in that reminds you of your New York childhood, if that's a hot dog or anything? Absolutely. A lousy sabred hot dog from one of the stands is once a year. I've always wondered what kind of water that, you know, because they have those. What, yeah, that, that's not the only thing I worry about. <laughs> I mean, the water, what's inside the hot dog. But at least once a year, I, I have to do it that. Does, it does that, taste good. That's, that, that's, that's a, sort of, a sort of pilgrimage, you might say, to. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Great. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government.